Welcome to another edition of Practitioner Radio, Pink Elephant's podcast for the IT management community. at sea. This is George Spaulding from Pink Elephant bringing you practitioner radio number 7070. Good heavens, my compadre and partner in crime, Troy Dumoulin. 70 of these, Troy. Well, it just keeps getting better with age. (laughs) Just like me, Troy. Just like me. Oh, Lord. So, and with us today, we have a special guest who we've had on here before, J. Paul Reed. I'm going to let him uh, introduce himself. Go ahead. Hello. This is, as you said, Paul Reed. I'm a uh, managing partner at Release Engineering Approaches, and uh, you might remember me from, what was it, episode 68, 67, a couple couple episodes ago? A couple episodes ago, right. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm happy to be back. And aviation best practices. uh, Yeah, yeah, the aviation best practices. So what does release engineering do? Let's remind me and everyone else. Well, release engineering is what we use, uh, what what DevOps became is the joke I like to tell. Um, But uh, it's the the practice and sort of management of the release and deployment of software. And I've been doing that for about 15 years now. But now I get called a... A DevOps consultant, because like I said, that's what it became. Congratulations. <laughs> Are you a DevOps engineer? Like I've heard about oh, this kind of rare beast. Yeah, no, I mean, I guess maybe I would be uh, if I if I was was doing, you know, but uh, full time stuff. But but now I, I do more consulting stuff. Um, and actually, surprisingly, I do a bunch of human factors and system safety type stuff now, too, which is related to DevOps. We We can talk about that if you want at some point. Well, that's good because our topic really today is about release and deployment and which, in other words, kind of the uh, where the rubber hits the road part of DevOps. In other words, we talk about lots of concepts. We talk about developing. We talk about uh, oper- and communication with operations and everything else. But in the end, we're still basically, we have a project or a solution, an application, and we have to get it into production. And that's really the release and deployment side of it. So sounds like it's right up your alley. And of course, Troy and I are, you know, near and dear to our heart is the ITIL process called release and deployment. So I think one of the things I'd like to know about, because I'm not uh, at least a DevOps expert, certainly when I'm in the same room with you, Paul, uh, if it was just if it was just me and a glass of wine and some people who didn't know anything, then I could be a DevOps expert. But um, so I really need to understand how that old what I call the old ITIL process, release and deployment, which uh, really is getting nigh on to nine years old now in terms of the most recent version, how that ties in and how it relates to DevOps. Troy, maybe you've got some ideas around this. Yeah, so the, you know, the conversation around you know, ITIL and lifecycle management in DevOps is, well, as I mentioned in a webinar I just recorded, DevOps is really an accelerator to the whole value flow premise, which is why it's based in lean and systems thinking. 
And you know, the question can, comes back, and how does it impact in what we've classically known as these processes? And I'll, and I'll put a, an image on the show notes to kind of give an illustration. There are some processes that change. Uh, when we think about this DevOps team concept and where this cross-functional team now is coming together to be full-time on this initiative and or uh, to you know dedicate it to a sprint, they bring in of themselves a representative body, literally, from the different parts of the value stream. There are people there from a planning perspective, from a design perspective, from a build perspective. And of course, we pull forward the ops people into the conversation as well because they have to be there as part of the, the warranty and the ongoing side. So we have this kind of complete little mini microcosm, little IT function in this DevOps team, uh, which does a great deal of improvement around the handoffs and uh, relationships because they now work as one cohesive team versus people who don't like each other uh, who live in different buildings so or even different countries if that's part of the whole conversation right and of course the question virtually but we'll leave that off the table for the moment but this whole premise of how does service management really address and this is my own thinking so you know george and and paul let me know if you think differently is that I see some of the processes in ITIL kind of staying the same. Like there's the whole demand intake, and I have this conversation around a storefront where we have the various intake of demand coming strategically through BRM, tactically through catalog, uh, operationally through service desk, and they all filter up as channels of demand to a strategy conversation where people think about, okay, the services we have now versus what we want in the future, the technical platforms we have now versus what we have in the future, the process architecture we have now versus what we want in the future. This is kind of this whole, where do we want to go and where are we now and how do we close the gap? That in itself, again, kind of stays relatively the same, portfolio, demand, BRM. But now let's consider we move forward and now we've got this now strategy set for here are the priorities. And so we've got to get into this build practice. So this is kind of like, if you will, the macro product backlog of all the things that get needs to get done, which get fed into the individual product backlogs of product managers and product owners, and they begin their sprints. Now, so so far the same uh, as we would know and you know understand, but where it differs now is remember this DevOps team, they represent the entire IT function in miniature. So you could say there's a voice from a security perspective there, from an availability and capacity or disaster recovery, a, a supplier perspective. So the DevOps team brings to the table um, the knowledge and understanding of not just the feature build out for the, for the release, but the, also the, the elements for the non-functional requirements you might want for monitoring, for ongoing support. Uh, the, the key point to make here is that they're not all inventing each of these processes individually by team, there's still this center of excellence that's being pulled from. It's kind of like in our last show, Paul, where we talked about the FAA and their their governance regulations around release. The same thing kind of applies to security and DR and supplier vendor management, where each now kind of pulls to the table from this common source of knowledge and understanding. Uh, and so they can actually now rapidly apply this knowledge to their release and this also applies to the release processes of, of production assurance, which is where our last show was. The final conversation is they need to deploy. Okay, so these are things that are green on, on this picture that I shared with everybody on the show notes. That's all kind of changes in this conversation of the cross-functional team. But where my belief now goes back to, we need still this conversation of a common uh, 
control tower landing planes is that we still need this change orchestration because we got all these planes coming in at different sizes, scope, scale, changes of different granularity, risk, etc. The goal is to get more and more pre-approved, automated, and ongoing, but there's still big grain stuff that we have to consider. So change in my mind is not handled by the team. That's where they submit into the process called change, ideally through an automated and uh, pre-approved process, but that's how it works. And the last component is operations. Uh, pretty much stays the same as we know it today, incident, problem, and uh, event, et cetera, except for the one scenario where, you know, in the past, after first level, who do I pass it to? We'd have to pass it to individual queues, like the network queue, the, you know, the database queue, the server queue. But now you don't, you pass it back to a DevOps team queue, which is actually now embodiment of the, of the full IT function in miniature again. That's my short story long. <laughs> I want Paul well, to comment on this now. Well, so the, the thing that I find interesting, and in fact, I was just recently asked this about whether or not um, if you, you know, in, in a, a kind of a larger organization or enterprise context, if you need a quote unquote DevOps team um, or if you can be successful without a DevOps team. And it's kind of interesting, right, because there's there's been a lot of back and forth and discussion for, you know, months extending into years about is uh, – a quote-unquote DevOps team, an anti-pattern. Um, and we, we don't have to rehash the discussion. There's good and, and bad arguments on, on both sides about whether you'd want to do it that way or not want to do it that way. But um, one of the things that we talked about uh, in the previous uh, podcast was, again, this, this connection to aviation and how they do it. And uh, I don't know if we talked at all about like the minimum equipment list, which is a list of equipment that all aircraft must have. Um, yes, we, we talked. Yeah, we talked about the departure manifest. So this idea that you've got um, dispatch paperwork that the the crew of the plane go through, but it's actually generated at a central facility uh, by the airline. Um, and then we also, I know, we talked a little bit about this idea of like different um, size airports. Which you might even consider, you know, uh, if you've got what, more innovative, faster-moving projects, that might be uh, like an uncontrolled field, a smaller airport versus something like SFO or LAX or some big airport where, you know, there needs to be more coordination. And so where this sort of feeds into kind of everything that you were just talking about is is from a DevOps team or release engineering perspective, I used to describe release engineering as sort of being in the control tower, right? And that's kind of the interesting thing that I always enjoyed about the the work that I did is I could see, uh, you know, I got that perspective of kind of being in the tower, right? I think though, what is more interesting is that if you look at all of the different roles that are uh, engaged in a particular deployment process, right? You've got ground crew, you you know, that are loading baggage and and uh, you know fueling the plane and doing all of that kind of stuff. You've got flight crew that's prepping the plane and getting that ready. Um, you've got obviously you know passengers there and you know getting on the plane. And then you've got in the airport a bunch of facilities uh, around managing that. And then, of course, you've got the FAA part of it. And so what's interesting is that uh, I think I've kind of changed my thinking on it a little bit that, I, you know, uh, uh, the point being that like a DevOps team does have uh, an interesting tower-like perspective in many cases. 
But the more interesting question is that, um, you know, if you decide to model your DevOps deployment with there being a quote unquote DevOps team, you're probably not putting every single team member in your entire organization on that team, right? And so the, the idea is then, or the interesting question is, how do you coordinate everyone from the person in the control tower to the central you know, dispatch facility that may be far away, to the people literally on the ground, to the people uh, you know, getting uh, the plane prepped? How do you coordinate them all with uh, some set of acceptable standards of practice, some, some set of assumptions about what each person is going to do that it, you can actually operationalize and scale that? Right. And so that is where I think there's there's a lot of sort of interesting uh, parallels there, like like we explored in the last episode. But but that was more focused on on kind of rules and, and regulations. Um, but how, how do we kind of take some of that learning and apply it to exactly what you were just talking about, where you've got you've got the, this now this kind of DevOps team that is doing these things? How can you, you know, more effectively get all of them on the same page and. um increase the the uh, the pace of, of doing releases as you were as you were talking about okay I, I have to ask a question because I'm feeling a little dumb um, so what, <laughs> I've, what I've heard now is both of you really say that we've got this large shall we call it enterprise IT organization and we have a number of processes that have are in place have been in place and a couple of them would be would be described as control processes like change management would be one of the key ones uh, which is really a control based process to control what goes into the production environment so but what I'm hearing from you, both of you, is that there's this DevOps kind of fast, super duper group, little mini group called the DevOps team that kind of um, skirts, if you will, some of the existing processes in big, slow moving IT, but then at some point reconnects maybe at change management. Am I hearing this right? No, I wouldn't. Ex I wouldn't describe it as skirting at all. So think of the of the scrum concept. This this team basically picks the ball up and they move it from beginning to the end, right to the goal line. They're not skirting it. What you've got is, is as opposed to this kind of ball being passed to different groups along the value chain to to run. Um, the run, the group runs it all the way together. So in this team you have a representative from different parts of the organization which would have this process in, potentially in its ownership. So they're not skirting it, they're actually following the process, but because they're self-contained, they can make decisions much quicker, they can decide which parts of the process apply and which don't apply, and they have a collective decision in what that is, so it's not just one part making a decision for the other part. So they can accelerate the use of these processes because they're a decision body unto themselves, but they're not disconnected to the greater whole. Uh, they're being informed by you know, the, the family policies. And so they know they can't operate outside of those family policies, but they have scope within them about how you know what they do and what they don't do. They make that decision, but they're not each of them inventing their own version of all of these. So they're still doing it according to a larger perspective. So Paul, as someone who goes into the, the field and consults on this, what happens to the what I would call the larger 
approval infrastructure that's out there in existing IT as this group moves through the processes? So I think uh, what you see a move towards specifically with the approval stuff um, or controls is trying to push more of that decision-making, kind of as Troy said, down to that team. Um, and the reason that um, you can you can do that more safely, I think, is because you do when you when you um, have a team that's made up of all the different representatives, you have more information to bear in the context of the problem at the moment that they have that problem. And so one of the reasons that we see people adding uh, lots of process or adding lots of controls is because, oh, in the past, we had a bug that took the site down because the database team and the network team didn't talk to each other. So now if we put a gate in there that somebody has to do something, then we'll solve that bug. And it turns out that the answer is actually not only will you not solve that bug, adding more process doesn't solve the problem. And so um, that is where you know having that team together to, to talk about it gets you uh, gets you the benefit of being able to move faster. The the other bit is that um, you see uh, I see this move in general because the question is typically asked. Well, how how can I move? at the speed the business wants me to move at when I have all of these controls. And so you see a lot of um, organizations moving more to um, funneling more of that control down, but um, cranking up the, their ability to audit things in retrospective. And actually some organizations, uh, Netflix has a great example, they're using like big data techniques with deployment, right? So they're, you know, they're deploying to thousands of Amazon hosts. They're using big data techniques to figure out if there's a problem or, or even a, um, uh, you know, an IT control violation because they have uh, metrics and monitoring uh, built into their, they actually call it observability, built into their platform. So they can tell when specific things are wrong. And that's, and the, that ends up how, being how the business uh, sort of uh, manages that control aspect. Yeah. And there's another concept, which is more of a natural mitigation to doing things that people would regret later. Because this team is accountable as a group for their decisions, they have to live with the results in the live environment, and they become production support for that thing. So they're less likely to do things which are going to decrement um, you know, life in general for themselves and for the organization because there's accountability, there's causality. They've, if it goes wrong, they get to own it. Right, so there's yeah. there's that sense of accountability. There's no throw it over the wall. I don't care anymore. Yeah, the example I, I like to give there, it, it, which is a great one, right? Because I lived this for much of my career. Is you know the developers, there'd be some deadline. The developers would finish the code on a Thursday or a Friday, and then you know this big um, QA uh, uh, apparatus and release engineering apparatus would start spinning up. And they would work through the weekend. But if you have, uh, you know, um, a, a team that's shared where if they finish it on Friday and they are going to deploy on Friday, it may be their Saturday that they're ruining. You'd be amazed at how many uh, how many uh, times that team will defer that deployment to a Monday. <laughs> well, and the other piece, getting back to that concept, um, you know, we've, we're, we're certainly talking about Agile here and we're talking about sprints and scrum, but we're, so we're talking about much smaller pieces 
that this as this t as this moves through the various processes we're also talking about continuous deployment right where where we have much 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 smaller pieces not no waterfall giant thing uh, but basically pieces that are self-contained that should add value of themselves but that are much easier to test and much easier to move through the process am i right yep yeah, uh, we often talk, and, and I'm sure Troy talks about this a lot too, because it's it's a uh, tenant of lean is small batch sizes. Mm -hmm. So you can see things easier in a small batch. It's harder to hide the reality of you know of risk. Uh, the other side of this as well is that um, you know this retrospective conversation. This is a closed loop system. Each of these agile type events basically have a retrospective where, like in the diagram, you're shipping lessons learned back because, again, they don't want to live through the pain of that. Let's try to avoid that in the future. It has a very personal impact on individuals. So, you know, there's this, this element of the system, the way it's now being run, that, you know, pain is a great deterrent <laughs> to, to future bad practice. So you can have less controls or controls that are informed from a higher level source uh, versus having you know audit built in. Uh, one of the questions I think that came up earlier as well is the size of this team. And I do think there's kind of like, there's your core you know, family, then there are cousins and the cousins are related to this team and they may come in and visit at different times in the event, but they're not necessarily daily at your home. You wouldn't want them to be. So you know, the, there's an extended family conversation going on here with with this team as well. Like you might have your, you know, I don't know, your uh, your vendor manager basically kind of come in on Sunday dinner, you know, one time during the event as part of the conversation. They're not living daily um, and eating at the family dinner every day. So you have the blood relatives and you have the extended family that are also part of this concept of the team. Can I be there's the drunk? A... Can I be the drunk uncle, Troy? It's... <laughs> Isn't that audit? No. <laughs> There's a great site. Um, you know, Troy, the the team um, structure that you talk about, uh, it really needs to be informed by your organization, right? If you have a different, you know, different sizes, organizations are going to do different things. Different structured organizations are going to do different things. You pointed out that, um, you know, maybe maybe uh, there was that kind of joke which which everybody laughs at was like oh it's those people in that other building that nobody likes or maybe those people in a different country so your quote unquote devops team may look different if they're actually not co-located on the same um, campus there's a great website um, called uh, devopstopologies.com and it's just a review of like the different structures of DevOps teams. It's got some nice pictures. Um, and it so so if you're curious about kind of the different models and the different, you know, again, it, your family analogy, right? There's different size families, you know, there are families that are in different countries or whatever, right? And and so it's that's kind of an interesting um, thing to look at if you're kind of curious about what the different sort of structures of, of DevOps teams can be. I also wanted to say one real quick thing to uh, a point, uh, respond to a point you made you were talking about sort of continuous delivery and, and the batch size, and we we're talking about, um, you know, it, it increases visibility. Um, it, so so uh, it, it's harder uh, for risk to sort of kind of get batched up or, or become, you know, these large risky projects. Um, as someone who does this in the field with teams, I will tell you that's actually the hardest part. Um, 
visibility can be very, visibility means vulnerability, right? And so in lots of organizations, there may be baggage around, you know, the site can never go down. And if it does go down, we're going to go take this team outside and shoot them. And when you suggest any change that increases visibility, if you have that type of culture, and this is the, you know, goes back to the DevOps culture uh, part of, of, of the DevOps practice. Um, if you have that type of culture, then visibility, because that means vulnerability, is scary. And so people don't want it. And you see this a lot in continuous delivery because continuous delivery pipelines make all of this incredibly transparent. And so that's something to be aware of. If people are kind of oddly refusing to do continuous delivery practices or don't want to talk to your DevOps team, it may be because it's not safe to be vulnerable or visible in your organization. And then that's a different conversation uh, to have and figure out. Yeah, so let's extend this. That, that DevOps family can't be living on a mountaintop or build you know, a fortress around itself. It has to live in community. It has to be connected right. to the rest of the organization. And otherwise right. we have strange hermit behavior that begins, which is not healthy right. for anybody. Right, and you hope too that that's that you know society or community they're living in you know has um, positive cultural values, right? That's right. That's what you're saying, George. Yeah. You're trying to say something. Go ahead in there. Well, I think that I mean I think that when we started off, uh, Paul was talking about the fact that he was kind of surprised that his uh, his practice has morphed into a lot of human factors. Uh, I'm sure it started on the more technical side, but you know, when we talk about lean culture and lean transformation and lean leadership and all of those types of things, we're talking about people. We're talking about people, the way they act and think and behave and accountability in the world of IT has always been a bit scary. We've never been a real fan of it. Um, so I think that uh, hearing that uh, accountability in a continuous deployment environment is scary, is not a surprise. Yeah, and, and to that point, I'm actually uh, currently pursuing my master's degree in human factors and system safety. And the interesting thing there is my classmates are all pilots, air traffic controllers, nuclear power plant engineers. Uh, there's some doctors in there that work with like level five biohazard stuff. Um, and I am the second web operations person to go through the program. John Allspaw is the first. And w w there's this interesting kind of, you know, connection where it's like uh, we are, you know, the, the IT systems that we work with are now, uh, you know, part of the, the, the they've joined this set of high risk technologies, just like a, a working hospital or a functioning nuclear plant. And so it turns out, actually, one of the things we talk a lot about um, in that program and in the context of classes, like pushing uh, the work closer to the people that do it because they have local rationality and a context for doing their job that, that we often talk about work is imagined versus work is performed. And this goes back exactly into a conversation where we're talking about, <laughs> about controls and trying to push that actually closer to the people doing the work because a lot of times if we make process or policies that are far away from the people doing the work, what happens? They, they're, you know, humans are great at finding ways around process that makes no sense. Yeah. Well, again, this is back to lean. The whole premise of Jadoka is to make, um, yes, mistakes visible and risk visible, but the other one is to empower people to to be self-determinant, to have autonomy, and to stop the lying when they see something that needs stopped, putting right. the work in the hands and the, and the best decisions in the hands of people who do the work for how things can be improved and what errors need to be you know, removed, waste to be 
removed. Right, the anion cord. And it's funny, right, because there's a story about it. I can't remember if it was Ford or I think it was Ford, but it might have been one of the other or GM. Um, they copied Toyota's anion cord, right? The anion cord is the cord you pull to stop the line to, to fix a problem. They copied that uh, that and into their plants here and somebody pulled it and that person got yelled at. And it's like, well, do you think anybody is ever going to pull the the line again to stop, you know, the pull Never. the cord again to stop the line? Never. Yep. So it was kind of funny that if you just copy sort of the, and this goes beautifully back to the DevOps thing. If you, you know, read the Phoenix Project or you read some of the, the DevOps books and just try to copy the processes, but don't think about the context or the cultural aspects of that community when you're deploying kind of DevOps within your organization, it's going to be this kind of weird version of it that you don't actually get the benefits. That's right. The, the key is there are controls. There is a society, the greater thing they belong to, right? You mentioned that, uh, George, earlier. There's the change on the downstream, but there's also that portfolio and demand on the upstream. You know, it's only in the middle that we have this kind of more autonomous type of approach to how we get it from, uh, okay, go to, all right, now we're going across the line. Into deployment, into production. And that's, that's where the controls kick that's... in, I would hope, as the old guy, yeah, so on, you see that, the old that, guy that, on this. Visual. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, look at that visual, or that gray line into the production. Right above it is that little pink change arrow. That's the control. That's the gating and the orchestration. Because now you've got all these sprints you know, coming at the production environment at one time. We have to have some kind of orchestration. Cool. All right. Well, believe it or not, gentlemen, we have reached close, not at, but close to the end of our time together. So I'm going to allow each of you a little bit of a closing statement. Uh, Troy, you go first. All right. Well... This whole conversation of improving release flow and deployment, we've talked about is hugely about how organizations structure around work. And this DevOps team is a great thing, whether it's virtual or physical. This whole working as a cross-functional value system is key, uh, pushing down autonomy to the group level where they are best able to do that. There's no way that can't improve flow. Cool. Paul, I'm going to give you the final word. Um, well, so this is, I think, a fascinating conversation, and I think we're all seeing organizations of all sizes, you know, some have started a little earlier, some have started a little later, struggling with this, and I know it's really hard. I think that's really good that they're tackling that, because uh, I think it really does improve uh, business outcomes. It's kind of funny, Troy, we, we were talking about this in the context of aviation metaphors, because we were trying to riff off the last podcast, and we kind of ended up uh, here with a community and a family and human factors. Uh, so there's there's lots of ways to sort of attack this problem. And, and if one of those resonates with you better than the other, you should definitely like, you know, look for the analogies there. But uh, but uh, the thing I would say is there's lots of different ways to do it. Um, there's lots of different structures that can be successful. Um, I would, um, you know, look at those and pick one that looks like it's going to work and then just iterate on it. And uh, I, I think that's it's it's hard work, but uh, but that's where you get the rewarding uh, or the reward because uh, doing that hard work uh, and, and learning uh, what all of this stuff means in your company's context, in the context of the work you do, uh, whether it's, you know, Uber for cats or, you know, health care system software, those are very different things. So you're going to have very different processes and team structure and all that kind of stuff. Uh, that's the meat of this practice and it's hard, but it's rewarding. So stick with it. <laughs> Great. Thank you. 
Thank you both. Thank you to my esteemed colleague, Troy de Molin, and our special guest, J. Paul Reed from uh, Release Engineering. This has been Practitioner Radio, Episode 70. Thanks very much.